Thank you, Steve, and thank you to all of you for coming out. Uh, Happy New Year to you, although I hear there's a question about whether or not I should be saying that. Um, But indeed, Happy New Year to you. Uh, It's good to be back with you, so thank you for the the invitation. One in Two Chronicles is where we're at uh, tonight, and um, your handout, hopefully you've got a handout, two sides. Uh, I've tried to make it as useful to you as possible, not being in your shoes, not knowing exactly what you want, but given, given the directions I was uh, um, given, um, we'll be looking at in this hour, this, to start out, we'll unpack that a little bit, then we'll look at the book's themes and theologies for most of the time. And then on the second page, uh, I was asked to give you some suggestions if you don't have time or inclination to read all of 1 and 2 Chronicles from start to finish, um, I understand. Uh, But here are some suggestions of of places you might want to focus your reading, and then on to continue your study, possibly questions for uh, your personal use or for your home group study, uh, or whatever, and then obviously for further reading as we go. Um, 1 and 2 Chronicles um, is in some ways a really good book for the beginning of January, because uh, as maybe some of you have done, you have looked back over 2019 to think about your year, whether it was an Annus Horribilis or a year of the Lord's favor, what was 2019 like for you? And then also maybe thinking about 2020, what's ahead and what you might expect, what you might hope for, what you might be praying for. One in Two Chronicles is a, is a little bit like that. It's looking back over more than just a year, but all of Israel's history, and also looking forward in a way to the fulfillment of God's promises, not just in the next year, but in gener- for generations to come. So in some ways, it's a perfect book for the beginning of January as we stand on the cusp of a new year in between two years. And I, I, one and two chronicles is a little bit like the synoptic gospels in a way. I, re- I remember very, very clearly, I was, I was about 13 when I started to read through the Bible for myself. And I remember sitting in my bed one night reading through uh, the gospel of Luke. Actually, it was Mark because I'd read Matthew. I was into Mark. And I'm, you know, I'm getting into chapter 6 and 7 and 8. And I'm like, I have read this before. I've read this before. And I looked on my little checklist, but Mark wasn't checked off. Matthew was checked off, but Mark wasn't checked off. And I haven't read it. I kept reading and I kept reading. I've read this before. I know these stories. I've read this before. Because nobody had told me that the synoptic gospels repeat each other, don't they? Chronicles is very similar. Chronicles repeats much of what you already know and have heard from especially 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. So if you remember everything I said in May, if you remember everything that Stephen said in June, please go have a cup of coffee because a lot of this will be repetition, all right? If you don't remember, uh, you're in good company and I'll hopefully guide you through some of the, the key ideas, giving you a framework for reading these two books. Just a show of hands so I know where I'm at. Who has read one and two chronicles in the last couple months? Okay, good. That's good in a way because uh, hopefully the framework I give you tonight will help you read it better and help you know how to, to engage with it. 
So to start out, I want to remind you where you are in this series, if you need reminding. All right? So you, uh, if you were here in the, the first week, I think, when Paul was introducing the whole series, you remember this arc, and we are still in Act 2. Act 2 lasts a long time. All right? But as you know, Act 1 and Act 2 are all pointing to Act 3. But we're in Act 2, and more specifically... We are in this timeline uh, starting around 1000 BC and headed in the, the, the direction towards about 500, uh, 400 BC. I'll unpack that. Um, I'll unpack that when we look at the actual uh, chronology of 1 and 2 Chronicles. All right, so that's where we are located in the bigger study, the bigger trajectory of your series. As we begin, I want to uh, give you a few pointers, some things that might be helpful for you to know as we start. And these are on your handout to start out. It, it might be uh, helpful to know a few things. The first thing is that Chronicles, like 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, is one book, not two. Um, it's one book in the original Hebrew text. It was uh, broken up into two books with the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but it tells one story. So there's no break, even though there's a break in your Bible, it's one story. Another thing to know is that in the Hebrew Bible, one in two kings comes at the very end. All right, The very end of the Hebrew Bible, the last book in the Jewish canon, and it be- belongs to Uh, a section of the Hebrew canon called the writings. Again, you've seen this. The writings, uh, which include, you see other books at the end, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. Some scholars, though, say that uh, Chronicles belongs to a different category. It's it's not uh, in competition with this category of the writings, but in that is history. Israelite history and the historical books. And that's another way of thinking about Chronicles, probably one that's most helpful to us tonight. Again, it's a, not a Jewish designation, uh, the historical writings. It's actually a Christian designation that comes in the 4th century AD with the church fathers. But uh, in the Christian Bible, the historical books include Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So as, a, as a, a book within the historical books, one scholar has said this about 1 and 2 Chronicles and the purpose of 1 and 2 Chronicles, which we'll come back to. Ancient historians had access to grind, theological or political points to make. Put another way, the ancient historian's primary concern was not detailing exactly what happened in the past, as much as it was showing how the causes of the past brought about the effects of the present, in other words, interpreting the meaning of the past for the present. He goes on to say the cause-effect explanations, that is looking at what has happened in the past to help us understand what is happening in the present, the cause-effect explanations 
employed by ancient history writers were not scientific in nature as they might be today, in other words, being exact with all of the facts and figures and geographical coordinates, etc., but typically had to do with moral and religious matters. The main point, and this is the point I want you to take away as we go into one or two chronicles, is that as a whole, ancient history writing was in many ways closer to storytelling about the past and moralizing on the basis of it than it was to journalistic reporting of facts. So what we have in one and two chronicles, even as history, is a story. So please do not plague me, although I'll be very happy if you come up with the questions. But Samuel says this, and Chronicles says this, and 1 and 2 Kings says this, and Chronicles says this, and there's this dif difference of some of the details of the story, and with the Chronicler, I'm going to say to you, but pay attention to the big picture. I, the chronicle has an, Chronicler has an agenda. Pay attention to his agenda. Pay attention to the story he's telling you. This comes in the Word of God. We don't have to worry about it being trustworthy. The story's trustworthy. All right, so let's listen to the story as we go. Um, back to your handout under uh, three or point three. The time span of one and two chronicles opens with a genealogy that goes back to Adam. So we're not going to get much further in history than that. But the narrative itself, that is the story of Israel it's telling, covers the kingdom of Judah from David, about 1000 BC, to the decree of Cyrus. That's the historical span it's covering. The story it's telling is, are the events that uh, happen in that, in that historical time span. The chronicler, however, the next point, writes in the post-exilic or the restoration period. All right? It's difficult for me to know how much of this you remember from previous books, okay? But, sorry, not much. Okay, well, um, I can't summarize them all. I've got to stick to one or two chronicles. Uh, but the time span is the, the history uh, of Israel. The chroniclers writing after that, after they have come back from exile and are beginning the restoration period. The restoration period of rebuilding the temple and, in a sense, re repopulating Jerusalem, repopulating the, the land that God had given them. Um, that's important to remember, and as the question there on your handout suggests, how might the fact that the chronicler's writing at a different time for a different purpose influence his message? He's, the people have returned from exile, or some of the people have returned from exile. They're living in a land that's not yet been fully rebuilt. In fact, with the divided kingdom, they might be wondering, where on earth is God? Has God forgotten his promises? The, the, the prophets told us these wonderful things would happen for the people of God, and I don't see them happening. So the chronicler has a message to give to Israel that needs to remind them of their past and the promises of God, what happened, so that they can understand how to interpret current events and engage with current events on the basis of God's promises which remain live. Okay? 
We've already noted that Chronicles borrows heavily from 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, other sources as well, but the repetition comes heavily from those books. And another thing I want us to remember as we read Chronicles, hopefully as you've done through all the Old Testament, is that Israel has a corporate identity. As late modern, postmodern Westerners, we think of, go back to what I started with, you know, as you think about your year past and your year future, the point of reflection is self usually, but for Israel, the point of reflection is the people. The people and their identity as a people in relationship to each other, and also a people in relationship to God. So reflection on the past, understanding the present, and thinking about the future turns on the fact that they belong to a community, and that community has a relationship with Yahweh. So the corporate identity is critical, and it's also going to be important as you read and engage and interpret Chronicles. There's no such thing as thinking about uh, oneself apart from relationship to community, to people, and to God. When it comes to the question of genre, I've already suggested that uh, Chronicles is history, all right? Can a book be more than one genre? Hopefully, because I'm also going to suggest, as a few scholars suggest, that Chronicles is also a sermon. Now, not all scholars agree with this, but if you think about where the, the author sits in relationship to a people who had lost a lot of hope and were wondering about the promises of God, Chronicler is going to be preaching a sermon, if you will, to encourage the people to remember the promises of God, the goodness of God, to inspire, to exhort them, to engage their lives in the here and now in light of that. So uh, it, it can also be understood as a sermon. And I think if you read, uh, it's a little tough to read the genealogies as a sermon, I accept, but other parts of the book uh, read more easily as a sermon. So that's some of the the background, hopefully, to set us up uh, for the the book itself. One more point, though. I've already hinted at this, but Hill, a scholar named Hill, unpacks this uh, helpfully, I think. And he suggests that the the Chronicles, the book, if I can call it that, Chronicles were... uh, compiled for the purpose of, two purposes he suggests, one is to offer a biography of God within Israel's own story. This isn't on your handout, and it might be good to jot it down. It might also help us wake up a little bit. It's warm in here. Some of us are drowsy. I want to keep you with me because that will make it worthwhile, hopefully, for you being here. Maybe because this isn't on your handout. But, but Hill suggests what Chronicles does is offer a biography of God. It tells us the story of who God is within the recapturing, the summary of Israel's story. So these slides will be, I think, available afterwards so you can come back to this list. But Chronicles identifies Yahweh as the sovereign ruler. Excuse me, that should be ruler, not rule. Ruler. Um, he, or he ex- exercises sovereign rule as creator. He, we see his providential intervention as sustainer. We see, again, an identification of his election of Israel. 
over and over and over we see that his faithfulness to his covenant promises. All right? We see his responsiveness to prayer, whether it's individuals or Israel as a community praying, God responds to that prayer. And we see God's justice, goodness, and mercy. So this could be another question for your your home groups if you want. Identifying these characteristics, this person of Yahweh in the text as you read. There's also, though, a theology of hope, which is another reason that Hill suggests the chronicler has written, and we've already intimated this. Um, Israel, looking at the devastation of Jerusalem, the temple, uh, the fact that they're under Persian rule, they're not free to be a theocracy, to have their own, even have their own king the way they had understood they should be or would be. So perhaps the Psalm 13 is appropriate. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O oh Lord, will you, will you forget your promises to your people forever as they return from exile into, uh, into Jerusalem in particular? But then Chronicles, as the writer is writing to inspire hope in the promises of God, we see in 6 verses 8 to 10, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name, that the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Chronicler wants to say to Israel, you have every reason to hope. You have every reason to hope. And maybe as a parenthetical comment, maybe that's a good word for you tonight as you look at 2020 because the God of Israel is our God and if they had every reason to hope then so do you and so do I and not only that but we also have Israel's story to illustrate why that God is so trustworthy and we also have the church's story and 2,000 years of faithfulness to Christ to inspire our own hope and our own faithfulness, offering a theology of hope. This is just to, to remind you um, the lay of the land in, in about 1,000, 12 tribes, which then becomes the divided kingdom of the north and the south, and Chronicles ends up with uh, the fall of the northern kingdom and the return from exile to Judah, specifically to Jerusalem, which is a a, a focus in Chronicles. Um, But as we see, as we see in one of the themes, there's this emphasis on all of Israel, um, post-divided kingdom, to to re-emphasize a united kingdom again. Y'all right? You ready to move on? Okay. The book I'm dividing up into three sections. I've given them uh, given them to you there. One Chronicles one to nine is a genealogy. One Chronicles ten to two Chronicles nine. Here we have kind of a magnifying glass on David and Solomon. 
the golden age, if you will, of the united monarchy. But their stories are told in such a way as to, again, turn around the temple with David planning the temple and Solomon building the temple. And alongside David and Solomon as examples of faithfulness, the temple is the big subject and with it correct worship. So that's the focus of this second section, 1 Chronicles 10 to 2 Chronicles 9. The third section, uh, 2 Chronicles 9, ends with the death of Solomon. So the the third section, 2 Chronicles 10 to 36, is the story of Judah during the period of the divided monarchy. uh, And alongside this, we get the themes of retribution or the themes of uh, reward for obedience and punishment for unfaithfulness. And if we think back to then this emphasis on hope, chronicler wanting to help his hearers, his readers, the people, to have hope in the promises of God. He ends with the the declare of a a Gentile king, the declaration of a Gentile king, the king of Persia, who declares in 2 Chronicles 36-23, the Lord, the God of heaven, has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you Of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So, I'm not going to go into the text in any more detail than that, as it's written out. Three sections, um, keep in mind. But I'm hoping a, a more helpful way to approach it will be to give you some themes to trace as you read. So you've got a, a box, a chart there, a table. With six, with six themes, I'm suggesting, are important to understand uh, as you read the text itself. Theme one, the Davidic dynasty. So these themes we can trace through one and two chronicles. Um, as you read, uh, you can... In fact, that might be one way, if, if, you're, if you're reading the, the book, to I would maybe choose two themes and read the book with those two themes in mind. Don't try to do it with all six. Choose two that pique your curiosity or that you know something about or that you know nothing about. And read the book just paying attention to where those, those themes come up. Um, the Davidic dynasty. David and Solomon... Uh, are presented as the heroes of, of, of Israel's golden age, this united monarchy. And uh, interestingly, the chronicler omits a lot of, if not all of, the negative detail about either men, save for uh, David calling for a census, um, which he includes in Chronicles. It's also in Samuel includes in Chronicles with different details. Please don't ask me about the details. Um, But the purpose, uh, scholars think, the reason for that, including that quote-unquote negative story, is because the census then identifies where the temple will be in Jerusalem. It has to do with David buying that piece of land and the temple being there. Apart from that, uh, the the story of David and Solomon are are pretty pretty glorious. Along with this, we see uh, the centrality of the Davidic covenant all the way through. 
really the centrality of, of the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenant, um, but the unconditionality of the Davidic covenant. David's, uh, God's promise to David to uh, give him a throne and a kingdom that will last forever. Now, if you were an Israelite, having known those promises from your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather, and you had spent a few years in exile and were lucky enough to come back from exile into Judah again, and you're looking at the land, and you've got a foreign ruler, you might be asking your, well, your son, because your grandfather and your father are gone now, your son might be asking you, what's, what's the deal with that promise, Dad? What's the deal with that promise? Because where is where is God? The king of Persia is ruling over us. Where where is God? A questioning of, of the, the 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 trustworthiness of of the God's covenant with David to have a, a throne and a kingdom that will last forever. But Chronicles is insistent on the unconditionality of that promise, of that throne. It's going to be forever. Uh, regardless of circumstances, God will uphold that promise. We also see um, that tied in with the Davidic dynasty, as we mentioned before, is the role of the temple. And the temple takes up a lot of time, which we'll see in a moment, takes up a lot of time and space in Chronicles. David, you remember from Samuel, decides he wants to build a house for God, a glorious house for God. It's going to be amazing. Um, but God tells David he's not going to be the one to build it because he has blood on his hands. He's not going to be the one to build it. but He can go ahead and plan it, but his son Solomon, whose name means peace, his son Solomon, because he's a man of peace, will actually build the temple. And this serves, if you will, as, in a sense, the, the, the link between David and Solomon. Uh, David plans the temple, Solomon builds the temple. So that is another link with David and Solomon. And all the way through, if there's an eschatology in, in Chronicles, we see it here. The promise of, of God's kingdom through David and the son of David that will last forever. And, and we see this connection then with the divinic dynasty, not as an end in itself, but as symbolic as the, of the kingdom of God. And, and I think we'll mention this uh, a little bit later as well, but I think it's also good here to, to remind ourselves of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? What is the Abrahamic covenant? Genesis 12, someone knows it. What does, what does God say to Abraham? I will... I will Bless you, give you land, and, and make you a great nation for what purpose? Not as an end in itself, but for what purpose? For what purpose? Why does, why does God choose Abraham and bless him? Bless all the nations. To bless all the nations of the world. And you and I would not be sitting here if it weren't for that, would we? To bless all the nations of the world. Israel is not an end in itself. Your salvation is not an end in itself. We are part of God's blessing the nations. And, and you'll get to that when you get to the New Testament books eventually, I hope. But we see it happening here. All right? The kingdom, the Davidic dynasty as symbolic of the kingdom of God that is to come. 
the Jerusalem uh, temple, Jerusalem and the temple is another theme as we go through Chronicles. The temple, uh, as was the tabernacle, is a locus of God's presence with his people. And Chronicles, in a sense, is really a history of the Jerusalem temple. Coming back from, remember the tabernacle, they had the tabernacle uh, that then becomes Solomon's temple, which is a glorious, glorious temple, but then is destroyed uh, during the exile. And as they come back from exile, they then begin to rebuild that temple. Uh, but the temple as a locus of, of God's presence with his people. And uh, around the actual structure of the temple, the chronicler thinks it's really important for us to understand things like uh, gatekeepers and uh, music directors and all the different uh, personnel that make the temple happen. And what is the temple for? What is meant to happen in the temple? Why does the temple need so many people to make it work? You tell me, what, what, what's the temple for? The worship of God. The worship of God. And in David's response to that, and Solomon's as well, the worship of God is, is given this glorious, magnificent, mind-blowing space. The sheer investment of human resources and, and material resources that go into building this temple is mind-blowing. In fact, if one home group could just do a tally of all the stuff that goes into building the temple and all the money that's invested from Solomon's own treasury and David's own treasury, but also from punters like you and me, Normal Israelites who bring what they have to build this temple that is fit for the worship of Yahweh. That is fit for his presence to come and for Israel to come meet God in that space, in that presence. And it's, it's, it merits this entire paraphernalia, really, that uh, is detailed in Chronicles. And that's central to the restoration, not just of the temple, not just of the land, but of Israel herself as a people. So restoration there isn't just of the building, but it's of Israel herself, the people of God. And with the temple as the geographical place, Jerusalem as the geographical place of the temple, Jerusalem itself takes significance, um, as it does uh, earlier on, in the Old Testament, but in particular now. And I couldn't help but as I was rereading Chronicles, it gave me a better understanding of why place is so important for Jews, both in Scripture and today. I don't have the same sense of place. And in some ways, that's a blessing because of Pentecost. We encountered the Spirit of God the world over, wherever we find the people of God. So we are tied to place in the same way that Israel was. But uh, at this point in time, they are. And it, it's, it's essential to, to come to grips with the temple and in Jerusalem. And, and central to that as well is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. What's the Ark of the Covenant? I keep throwing it back to you because I'm trying to keep you sleepers with me. What's the Ark of the Covenant? Sorry? 
presence of God? What is it? A box? Ten Commandments? Yep. Okay. Desi? The footstool of the divine throne. So it's not the fullness of the divine throne. In very un, un, uh, professorial language, it's the stuff we get to see. Yeah? It's, it's the bit we get to see. And the ark is central as well, bringing the ark into uh, eventually the, ta- the temple in Jerusalem and its place there. Key, key as well. All right? The temple. Keep track of the temple as you read. All Israel is another theme. And I've put it in inverted commas here because it's an actual phrase that we encounter in Chronicles as we go. Um, For those of you who are into statistics, uh, the term all Israel occurs, uh, I do have it on there, uh, 105 times in biblical Hebrew, and at least 32 of those times are in Chronicles. Okay? It's a big theme for Chronicles. Remember, the chronicler is writing to retell the history of Israel. He's writing it after the divided kingdom, after the fall of the northern kingdom. He's writing it after the end of exile, coming back into the land. And what could be more important than reiterating to the people, you are one. You are the people of God. You are one. You are the same people he called. You are one, all Israel. Um, All Israel emphasizing the unity of God's people even after the division and, in in a sense, the decimation of of part of uh, of part of the the people uh, itself. And here I want to take us back to Genesis 12 as well. Okay? Um, all Israel for the purpose of all people. All Israel for the purpose of all people. That promise hasn't changed. That cover, that bit of Genesis 12 hasn't changed. That God has called Israel to be a blessing to the nations. And uh, this is, I think, a, a I think it's somewhat mind-boggling when you get to 2 Chronicles uh, 2.12, where you hear in the mouth of a, of a foreign king, a mouth of a foreign king, praise to the king of Israel, praise to the God of Israel. Again, I'm tying this into the, the Abrahamic covenant. 2 Chronicles 2.12. Uh, and here I'm added... Hiram, king of Tyre, okay, is, is writing to Solomon, um, and he writes, Because the Lord loves his people, he has made you their king. And Hiram added, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who made heaven and earth. I'm not even going to read the rest of that. Praise be to the God of Israel, who made heaven and earth. This is not from the Israelite king. This is from a foreign king. And already... Already we have witness to the fulfillment or the, the, the burgeoning, if you will, of the promise of God to all Israel for all people. 
Howard suggests that the, one of the chronicler's burdens in writing the book was to keep the memory of all Israel alive, even if it did not exist as a socio-political reality in the chronicler's day. This echoes some of the prophet's insistence upon a future restoration of the entire nation. So one scholar's emphasis on why all Israel is such a big theme. And you see that uh, throughout, even if you just pay attention to that phrase, all Israel, um, as this indivisible unity, God's people in its entirety, that still had a place in God's plan for the future. Retribution is another theme. You'd expect to find this because it's such a big theme throughout the Old Testament. And insofar as he's telling the, the whole story, he's going to mention retribution or, or reward and punishment. Um, reward for uh, obedience, punishment for disobedience. And we see it especially in relationship to the kings that the chronicler talks about. Um, the Mosaic Covenant is reiterated then in Second Chronicles. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a, success, a successor to rule over Israel. So again, a reiteration of the Davidic dynasty, but that emphasis on if you walk before me faithfully. So obviously a word to Solomon. Um, Walk before me faithfully as David your father did, but coming back to that covenant. Um, and again, as, as one scholar suggests, this when you get to especially 2 Chronicles 10 to 30, uh, 35, and the, going through all the different kings in the divided kingdom, you see this as the measurement, this yardstick of their, their worth as a king whether or not they obeyed God, whether or not they were faithful to the law, and then what happens as a result. So another theme to pay attention to. And it's, it's, it's something we're very uh, aware of and used to hearing as we read the Old Testament. I'm not sure where it goes when we get to the New Testament, because you might say, well, in Jesus, yes, in Jesus, and there's still a relationship, there's still a dynamic there where, yes, God's love is utterly unconditional. And God still has expectations of his people. God still has expectations um, of his people individually and also as a community. Are you with me? I'm actually going to give you a 60-second body break. Okay, if you need to move around, I know this isn't kosher, this isn't done, it's going to mess up the podcast, but some of you need to move, okay? So 60 seconds, if you need to move around, go for it, move, wake your neighbor up, get some few deep breaths.
All right. We'll move on to our fourth theme, or whatever number we're at. We're at five. Attitudes of the heart. Attitudes of the heart. Obedience to the law and ritual purity, as important as they are, and right worship, as important as it, as it is in the temple, this is not all there is. And they can't be isolated from purity of heart, attitude, intention, and allegiance. And so um, in, uh, in Chronicles, you get those verses um, that are so easily taken out of context because they sound so good. Um, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen, strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. 2 Chronicles 16.9, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. That's just one example of this emphasis um, on the heart. Yes, sorry, 2 Chronicles 16.9. And then we see uh, earlier in 1 Chronicles 28.9, and you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion with the willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. The fact that this 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 God of all, the Lord of all, Yahweh, also sees intimately into, into each of us, into our hearts and minds, intentions, attitudes. Um, again, for those of you who, who like statistics, uh, uh, for six, uh, the heart, the term heart, and again, um, please don't ask me the details for all the different words of heart in Hebrew. I can't break this down for you, but I'm sure some resident friends will if you want them to. Uh, occurs 63 times in 1 and 2 Chronicles. 63 times. The emphasis of this word uh, or family of words uh, throughout the, the book is, is important. Um, Along with heart, joy and rejoicing in particular play a, have, a big, have a big role to play. So it's not just watch the attitudes of your heart, whatever they may be, but foster joy and rejoicing in the Lord, in his promises. Foster joy and rejoicing in your attitude in worship. Joy and rejoicing play a very significant part throughout the book, and as particularly in relationship to the heart. Um, and we see, again, in relationship to the kings, but also in relationship to normal Israelites, um, a proud heart was unacceptable to God. Humility, trust, faithfulness, and wholeness, that is the kind of, I suppose, maybe a word that gets close to it in, in English is integrity, that, that our heart is consistent with the rest of us, the rest of us is consistent with our heart, is important. And it's not hard to see how that, that emphasis continues in the New Testament as well, but I think it's, a good, uh, it's good to keep that in mind when, we, when we're reading all the lists of the rituals that need to happen, all the animals that need to be slaughtered for right worship. Heart matters as well. And then a final theme is the theme of prayer. The, the theme of prayer. Prayer, I suppose, is one of those... Uh, practices. Um, I don't even know what, what, what word to use. It's, it's one of those things um, that, that really doesn't change, does it, throughout scripture. 
communication, conversation with God. Hopefully, with the right attitude of heart, with joy and rejoicing in who he is and who we are in relationship to him, but also in honesty and and also in expressing need, prayer. And and Chronicles has a number of of beautiful and and also somewhat thought-provoking prayers. Prayer is a theme that goes throughout. I've only given you here a few longer prayers um, that... Uh, end up in some in some cases end up being psalms that reflect the the prayers in this case kings uh, response to word to conversation with Yahweh and they happen at, at different points in the story but the chronicler has an agenda right and prayer is part of his agenda fostering, inviting communication between Israel and their God. And not just for the kings, but for everybody. So prayer, too, is central to to the book and to the, the theology that the chronicler is trying to communicate. David's psalm of thanks, for example, in 1 Chronicles 16. So the ark of God has come to the David that, to, to the tent that David has pitched for it in Jerusalem. Obviously, the temple's not been built yet, but David is just... I'm sorry, David. This, this, it, it's not fair to say David's excited. It doesn't seem quite monarch, kingly a, 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 enough of a term, but David is just so excited about the ark of God coming the Ark of the Covenant coming. And so uh, he and his, his associates write the psalm giving thanks to the Lord. Psalm uh, 1 Chronicles 16, 8 and following. I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but the, 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 the sense of it. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. In other words, you were in exile. You've come back from exile. Don't hunker down and be an isolated little uh, people, nation. You need to make known among the nations what God has done for you. He's brought you back from exile. Make known among the nations. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he has pronounced. O descendants of Israel, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. And again, you could even just read those verses as you think about 2020 for yourself. The chronicler wants to inspire hope, and so too I think the Spirit wants to inspire hope in us, even as we think about the year ahead. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. I put at the top of your handout, hopefully to inspire you, a quote from a scholar who spent, I think, his entire life on one and two chronicles. So, so he might say this. However, I think, he's, I think he's right. I regard chronicles as one of the richest minds of spirituality in all of scripture. Not the Psalms not the Paul's letters, but one and two chronicles. 
A mine, yes, and as a miner must chop and toil to bring out shining nuggets, students of Chronicles must labor with care, diligence, and circumspection if their hope is to make this treasure theirs. So I, I've only spent a fraction of DeVries' time on 1 and 2 Chronicles, and I promise you the nuggets are there, okay? They are there. And my prayer for you is as you read and as you study, you'll find some of those, and that might be really very specifically plainly your prayer as well. They might not be quite so obvious as you're reading through a lot of repetition. I've heard this before, but, but they are there. Why does Chronicles matter for us today? First of all, it reminds us the church of our heritage in Israel. We didn't start in 33 AD with the resurrection. We have a heritage and a people whom God chose for a specific purpose. We have been grafted into that people, and we are borrowers of those promises as well. But our commission remains the same, and that is to be a blessing to the nations, to be, to, to be a, a means through which God can bless the nations. Our heritage is in Israel, and it's good to be reminded of that story. It's also good to be reminded that the Old Testament covenants are the soil in which the promise of salvation for all nations is planted. Again, it doesn't start with the Great Commission. It starts with God's initiative with Abraham. And were it not for those covenants with Abraham and Moses and David then we wouldn't have the new covenant of Christ in his blood. But we do have the new covenant of Christ in his blood. And it's entirely consistent with the character of God that we see in Chronicles. Chronicles also emphasizes the reality of the social and theological identity of God's people throughout history. Again, we don't tend to think, or at least my experience of the church and of Christian discipleship, isn't usually of a social and political identity. It has more to do with where I'm at with God and what God's doing in my life and where I'm messing up and where God's forgiving me and woe is me. I have a lot of woe is me in my life right now. But it's good to be reminded that not only as I look at you, but as I look at the story of Israel, there is a bigger reality that transforms life, not just my life, not just your life, but our life together and the life of the nation in which we are planted. Just as God was about doing that, and we hear, we hear the king Hiram affirm uh, 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 that in, in, in Chronicles. And then Chronicles also, Chronicles also matters for us today because hope is central. Hope is central... to the relationship that God has with his creation. And I intentionally use the word creation there and not just his people. Because God has a plan for the creation. And in Christ, resurrected and seated at high, uh, uh, on high at the right hand of the Father, we see a rule and reign over all creation, not just over a holy huddle who happened to call them his Lord. 
overall creation. And hope is central to that relationship between God and his creation. Between God and his people, between God and all nations, between God and and his hope for everything he's created and the renewal of all things that one day we will see. I hope that's okay. I just want to bring you to a few uh, practical uh, pointers, okay? So I just want to remind you of those good suggestions back in week one as you read different positions to take as you read scripture. Um, Go back to those notes in week one. Do we read this text from a Reformation position? What does it say to me as an individual? Liberation position, what does it say to us as a people? Liturgical position, what does this passage speak to us as a church? That might be one way, if you're not going to choose one of the themes, choose one of those positions and read the text as an individual or as a group. Frame your reading in that particular way can be helpful. As you read as well, I've given you some suggestions, as I said, about, about what to read and what maybe maybe to skip. Um, if you don't have time to read. It, it actually doesn't take that much time to read two books. It, it doesn't. Especially if you know how to skim. It doesn't. Okay? So you can do it. But if you're really stuck, then you can follow those suggestions. As you look on your handout then, to the, I just want to mention two things, uh, a couple things as, as we look at these final questions to continue your study. Um, these are just questions I have come up with In some ways, they're very pedestrian, and any of you could have come up with these questions. Um, I'm sure if you're in a home group or small group, you can come up with your own questions. Don't underestimate the intelligence of your your corporate study, all right? Um, The first question simply gets at Chronicles as a summary of the story of God and humanity before Christ, okay? Chronicles comes at the end of the Old Testament canon. Why? It's a summary what do summaries do? What does it do? In what way does it summarize it? Question two, what is the repeated stress in these verses? So have a look at those verses, very specifically using the same language, and then relate it back to a key theme of the book and and think about it for a little while. Three focuses on that that point of joyful songs, the character of Yahweh behind that exhortation to be joyful and to sing to the Lord. And I suppose as I've read Chronicles, I've thought about this a little bit more. The role of corporate worship, including corporate singing, um, does that need to be brought into your own devotional life? Does that, can that be brought into your home group, your small group? Words are my life as a teacher. Words, 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 words. I love words. But you know what? When I stop to sing them, something different happens. So consider that, the role of singing, as you, even as you study. Um, Four, the whole community affirms something specific when the, uh, in these three instances, um, when the ark is brought into Jerusalem, when it's brought into the temple, and when the temple is consecrated. What is it that the whole community affirms? Look at these events, note what's distinctive about them, and then ask if there's any parallel 
or relevance for Fitzroy today. And when I say ask, I do genuinely mean ask, okay? I don't have a presupposed answer to that. But in bridging, bridging, from, one, bridging from Chronicles to the 21st century in your own community, is there relevance? And then finally, five, one passage from Chronicles that you've heard, or certainly I've heard often as an American, that is ripped out of its original context is 2 Chronicles 7.14. I want you to go back and I want you to look at it in its context. I want you to, um, sorry, that sounds very demanding. It might be a good idea for you to uh, to uh, ask uh what is Yahweh's main point in this original context? Does it have anything to say to the people of God today? And again, genuinely, I do not presuppose the answer to this. If it doesn't have anything to say to us today, why not? And if it does, why? Right? I don't have any presupposed answer to that. It's up to you to discuss and discover. I really hope that you have all been watching the videos of the Bible projects, because those are fantastic. If you need a brain break someday, just just five minutes, just a brain break, fantastic. And they do, and in my view, they do an excellent job of covering the basics. So everyone who didn't come tonight has just done that and, and, and spent five minutes and got the summary. But I really appreciate you being here and going over this with me, going through one chron- one or two chronicles with me. Um, it's worth it. I promise you, it's worth it. So as you, as you set off and read and engage, I hope you find much joy in it. Thank you.